Hi and welcome to episode 67 of the Page One Podcast. I'm Marco. I'm Tarek. And thanks for joining us at the Page One Podcast where we like to speak to writers of all kinds about their writing career, how they got into the industry and try and get as many hints and tips from them as possible. Um, This is episode 67 uh, which means there are 66 other great writers that you could be listening to after this episode. Actually, Richard Morgan was a double episode. Oh, that's absolutely true. 65 episodes. But we do have... And the... M.R. Carey came back twice. Okay, 64 different <laughs> different writers. 66 other great episodes. I can would I agree say with that? that. There's no problem with that. Okay. I can sign up on that. And also uh, two episodes of the Page One Sessions where we got some of oh, our guests back and did video chats with them as well. So, uh, yeah, lots in the back catalogue. But before you go and search the back catalogue, Listen to this week's episode because we've got a great guest on this week. We do. This week we are chatting with Charlie Jane Anders, who, if you were a listener of last week's episode, uh, you may find a link of sorts. Uh, Charlie Jane Anders is an American writer, commentator. She's written several novels, uh, perhaps best known for All the Birds in the Sky. That was a big kind of breakout novel Mm -hmm. for her back in 2016, uh, but also was a very prominent writer on io9, which is a website we chatted a lot about last week. Yeah, uh, Annalee Newitt uh, was the founder of uh, io9 and Charlie Jane uh, also was there at the start of io9 and, and, and wrote a lot for io9 before she mm-hmm. um, left to focus on writing novels uh, as we discuss. And it's an interesting speaking to Charlie Jane just hearing about her route into the industry because as ever it's not your typical send query letters out uh, and get picked up type route that she, in her case, um, she was doing a sort of spoken word tour and met uh, someone in a publishing house, and you know that that's how the, her first book, Choir Boy, got picked up, as as we will go and discuss. But, yeah. um, and as you mentioned, uh, since then she's gone on to have great success with All the Birds in the Sky and uh, City in the Middle of the Night, and she's about to release uh, a new, the first book in a new young adult trilogy. Uh, which is called Victories Greater Than Death, uh, which is out next week at the time of release of this episode. Um, so we chat about all of that and much more, of course, as well. So we'll get straight into it now after a quick advert for our page one notebook, and then we'll be back at the end of the podcast with a bit more chat and to let you know about next week's great guest. But for now, on with the podcast. The Blank Page. To some, it's terrifying, an obstacle to overcome. But we prefer to think of it as an opportunity, a blank canvas to be filled with all of the adventures and characters in our head. So how to overcome that fear? Well, we all know the best advice for a writer is, write. Seriously, get words on the page and more will follow. But what about later, when you start trying to pull those threads of what you've written together? What about the character you wrote about way back at the start? Who was she again? What was she carrying? And where did she leave the MacGuffin that she now really needs in the third act? Think about all those taut thrillers you like to read. Or that amazing drama you just watched. What did they all have in common? Structure and planning. As aspiring writers ourselves, we've tried many different methods to try and organise all the thoughts about the stories we want to tell. We've been there searching for a piece of scrap paper to note something down, or making a quick note on our phone in between meetings. Or sometimes we'll make a note in whatever notebook we're carrying 
or our document on our laptop so we don't forget that great idea. Let's be honest, it can all be a bit messy and it's easy to lose track of everything. And that's when we realise it's not just a story that needs structure and planning, but the way we gather all of our thoughts about it as well. And so we made page one. Page one is more than just another notebook. It's a place to put down all your ideas for your latest project, divided into easy-to-use sections that will help you plan your story so that when that blank page comes calling, you're ready to answer. And then afterwards, once it's written, we realised you need to plan how to let people read it, so we included a section relating to submissions. Each one is designed for one project, whether you want to write a book, screenplay, a comic or any other kind of story. We truly believe that when you use it, it will help you get to the main event, writing your story. So we hope this helps. We can't wait to read what you come up with. And remember, every story starts with page one. I, I tend to start these podcasts with the same question, which is, did you always want to be a writer? Yeah, you know, I think when I was a kid, I had two careers that I sort of thought about. One was being a writer and one was being an actor because I loved watching TV and I loved the idea that you could be one of these people who gets paid to run around and, you know, say dialogue and kind of, you know, make stuff happen. And, uh, you know, I tried acting when I was in high school and I was terrible at it. I was the worst actor. I was just, I could not act my way out of, paper, out of a paper bag. So writing it is. And, you know, I always, I think writing was always going to be my career because I grew up kind of making up stories in my head all the time. And it was just sort of a thing that I always did. So it just sort of felt like the kind of natural path for me. And it's, you know, I, it just sort of made sense, I think. And was it always the goal to get into writing novels? Did, you know, were you focused on, I want to write a book or, you know, screenplays or obviously some journalism in there as well? What what, what made you sort of focus that, that desire? I definitely always wanted to do sort of creative writing and, uh, you know, make up stories and fiction. Um, I don't know that I especially thought novels were like, you know, the thing I needed to do. Like, I definitely loved writing short stories. And especially when I started out, like making a serious attempt as a writer for a while, I was like, I'm only going to write short stories because short stories are just so satisfying and they're so fun. And you can just do so much more in a short story than you can in a novel because it's kind of lower stakes a little bit. And also, you know, you can kind of slide under the radar a little bit with some of these odd experiments. I still really love short stories, but unfortunately, the world really loves novels. And I started to really love writing novels, too. I think writing novels is, is a blast. And your, the first novel you wrote was Choir Boy, is that right, in 2005? That's correct. I actually mostly wrote it back in 2001, but it took some time to find a publisher. And so what, what was it like when you, when you did kind of think, right, I'm going to go for this, I'm going to try and write this novel? Um, you know, what, what, what was it like in the in the process for you planning or do you kind of sit down and plan it all out from from scratch or do you kind of kind of you know go right as you go plan as you go type thing you know i would say i think that there's sort of a spectrum between like the planning and the the making it up as you go and i definitely have always fallen a little bit more on the make it up as you go side although i've worked on becoming more of an outliner recently and with choir boy i uh you know i i was definitely just sort of finding the story as I went. And, you know, Choir Boy was kind of an interesting case. It was like, basically, I think 
probably correctly, I sort of figured out that like for my first novel, I ought to write about things that I'd actually sort of experienced, like that were kind of semi-autobiographical, obviously not really autobiographical because there's a lot of very weird magical stuff in Choir Boy, but semi-autobiographical. And I, I actually was a choir boy for, you know, for years. I sang in church choirs for, for about 10 years, you know, as a choir boy and then as a as an adult um, going into basically through college, I guess. And uh, so I was always singing in church choirs. And I, you know, I did have this experience when I was pretty young that my parents sent me off to go sing in this cathedral choir. You know, we would have rehearsals once or twice a week and then obviously be there on Sundays and sing in, in services and we would do other random stuff. And, you know, it was this really intense experience, especially at the time. And it was a lot of playing dress up and a lot of like, learning about music and a lot of like, you know, weird kid politics. And so, you know, I sort of started to think about how to write a novel about that. And the main character that I originally had in the novel uh, was not really just wasn't moving the story forward in a way that was interesting, wasn't kind of, you know, as much fun as I'd hoped. And so there was this other character just sort of lurking in the backdrop who, you know, kind of popped up occasionally and just seemed so much more interesting, like a, a, a minor supporting character. And so I did it promoting them to main character and that was kind of where it went. Mm -hmm. But yeah, I mean, you know, I think that having that kind of that real life experience and all of the stuff about religion and like, you know, what makes something a religious experience rather than just like a cultural experience um, because you can sing religious music or you can sing secular music and, they often can be very similar, but but the the feeling is different, you know, because of the context. Mm -hmm. So those kinds of questions, that was sort of what kind of led me through the book. But having the, the real life experience really helped. And you mentioned there that you, you wrote that in 2001, but it took a while to, to get published. I mean, what was the path to publishing? Was it, you know, the, the, the path that we hear a lot of people sending out lots and lots of um, letters to agents and and eventually finding one that would take them on or, or how did it happen for you? Well, yeah, no, I had, oh gosh, I sent out so many query letters. I mean, you know, at the time I was also setting out so many short fiction submissions mm -hmm. and just getting rejection upon rejection upon rejection. Somewhere I have like just, you know, a file with all the, just the paper rejections I got because by at that point in the early 2000s, some people were already doing email rejections, but the ones that did, rejections on paper, um, which a lot of people were very slow to get rid of that. Gosh. Yeah. Um, the ones that do, re did rejections on paper, I've got like just, you know, I could I could probably bury someone alive <laughs> in like, my old short fiction rejections. So I got a lot of rejections from agents and small presses and, you know, anybody who would look at a novel looked at Choir Boy and was like, eh, no. Um, and then you know, actually what happened, and this is kind of an example of how things often seem to happen in the publishing world, because it's also ad hoc and kind of, you know, you just, you just kind of figure things out as you go. Um, I was, um, I went on this sort of spoken word tour um, with some other, it was sort of a punk rock indie spoken word tour organized by this amazing Canadian writer named Jim Monroe, who does um, kind of off-kilter weird science fiction books. Um, I'm a huge fan of his work. And, you know, he was trying to sort of do a lot of indie stuff at the time. He had his own indie small press. He was doing his own indie games. And so he created this sort of indie tour um, 
and it was like me and two or three other people. There was a there was a cartoonist. There was a another. There was the fiction author, and we would just travel around all over the place and sleep on people's floors and like you know it was very much your sort of punk rock book tour yeah. where you know we were like basically just like kind of sleeping rough and you know getting up every morning and then just driving to another city where we would go to some tiny cafe somewhere and read our work and like it was exhausting because you know you'd be staying in some punk rock group house and somebody would decide that they really, really, really needed to blast Pink Floyd at top volume at three in the morning, <laughs> you know, and you were like sleeping next to the speaker and uh, on the floor. And, you know, there was a lot of that. And, uh, you know, we got our show in Cincinnati. We went to this tiny little cafe in Cincinnati and we were supposed to do our show after our kind of quote unquote opening act, which was this local performer whose name I've now forgotten. And he showed up like an hour late and he had like this thing where he was going to his all these people were going to play bongos around him and he was going to recite his poetry. And we were like, can he just do his things so that we can get up there? And he kept <laughs> delaying and delaying and our audience was leaving. And we were like going to go confront him until somebody pointed to a newspaper headline that this spoken word artist that was holding us up had only just been arrested for punching a police horse in the face <laughs> and at that point we sort of went okay this guy could take as long as he needs um, <laughs> nobody's gonna go up and talk to this guy um so that show was kind of a disaster so anyways i was on this spoken word tour and um basically one of the stops on the tour was in brooklyn where at the time soft skull press had a uh, a little kind of bookshop that they were running they were soft skull who are still around, but now they're part of a larger company. But at the time, they were a really small indie. They had been actually publishing some books that got a lot of attention. Um, like one of their books, the author got on the Today Show and stuff. And, you know, they, they, they were a very, they were a small press that punched way above their weight and had gotten some really huge books. And they published some friends of mine. And so, you know, we were doing this show at the Soft Skull Press bookstore and right next door to their offices. And so all the Soft Skull people were there. And, you know, they had, they had a, there was a one um, trans person working there, Tennessee Jones. And so I was chatting with Tennessee. I was chatting with Richard who ran Soft Skull Press. And, you know, of course I mentioned I had a novel and, you know, they had just seen me perform and, you know, they were like, oh yeah, send it along. And I think I might've already sent it along to Soft Skull in the past, but this time I had an invitation to do yeah. so. Yeah. And so I sent it to them. And then I think it took, it took a long, long time, and I sort of thought that they'd lost it. And then finally they got in touch, and they were like, yeah, we want to publish this. And, um, you know, that was just – that was such a great break. That was such a lucky break. And Soft Skull, you know, like I said, I, I was a huge fan of so many of the books that they were doing. So that was kind of how things sometimes work is that you just, you know, you just kind of meet people and having that personal interaction leads to something. And, you know – it's it's tough because slush piles are giant and you know having read slush having read unsolicited submissions i know that you know it's really hard to get through all that stuff and you have to delegate it often to people like i was at the time just you know some random person who was like i'll read all these mm -hmm. giant stack of submissions and so it's you know you can get i have definitely around that same time in fact i got discovered in the slush by this like you know slightly fancy local literary magazine that they prided themselves on reading every one of their submissions and a certain percentage of their issue every 
issue would come from the, the slush pile. And that was something that they were really passionate about. So I, I liked out there, but, you know, oftentimes meeting people and, and making, you know, making a personal connection is how things happen in, in the industry. Yeah. I mean, it, sorry, I was just going to say like for a lot of the guests that we've had on it is it's, it's amazing actually how, how many of them didn't have that convention, you know, what is said to be the sort of tried and tre- tested route of query letter agent, publisher route route to publishing there's always sort of a winding path and then a meeting with someone or you know something happens that's serendipitous almost that that um leads to that first break which is which is quite important yeah and you know i was going to say i think that this kind of puts barriers to the path of you know people who you know because of class or mm-hmm. or race or you know yeah. disability or various other things can't be in that position of, you know, doing what I did, which was basically like, you know, sleeping on a floor for two weeks and, you know, driving around in a tiny car with like three other people um, and going to like do a different, do a show in a different city every night and that kind of stuff. You know, a lot of people couldn't do that. You know, um, a lot of people would never have been invited to do that. It was just pure luck that I got invited to do it because again, I had met Jim and I, had, you mm-hmm. know, it was just, it's one of those things. It's just, you know, I feel like, we need to have this is part of how uh people get shut out of the industry who shouldn't who really should not be shut out and we need to like do better about that and we need to do better about creating other paths to publication you know i think it's a real problem i do have another story though that you know is kind of the counterpoint to that which is um you know i always wanted to be published in tin house magazine which mm-hmm. is this very fancy literary magazine here in the states and um you know there was a very you know somewhat pretty famous local writer who one time told me, heard me read a piece of a thing said, you know, I, if you finish that piece, I can submit it. I know the folks at Tin House, I will get it to them. And so I kind of, you know, struggled with that piece for another six months, finally sent it to this guy. He said, he said, he said it to Tin House, um, never heard a word from Tin House about it. You know, probably just, ended up in a, in, you know, mm-hmm. their giant ocean of stuff. But then like th- three, four years later, maybe someone from Tinted House just randomly got in touch and said, Hey, I read this short story of yours online and I really liked it. And we'd like you to submit. And just from having seen my work, uh, it was actually a story that very few other people had noticed actually that to this day has, has not gotten a lot of attention. Um, but you know, it was a story called suicide drive. I think it's still online somewhere. Anyway, uh, just from him finding my work and liking it, uh, I got an invitation to submit and I submitted and finally they did publish a piece of mine. And so, you know, um, so sometimes it, you know, it doesn't always happen through the like, you know, you know, a guy or you meet someone or, you know, it's, I've had it happen in many different ways. And I think it's definitely better if, if it's not the kind of, you know, oh, so-and-so bought me a drink once. So we're going to read their thing, you know, kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but Things run on everything runs on relationships. It's just you know, it just needs to. We need to find other pathways as well. Well, I mean, that's interesting because you went on to then kind of create a, a massive blog in kind of IO nine uh, a few years after that, which was, which was, you know, huge um, kind of science fiction and um, science fact kind of meshing together, and also gave. Um, a voice to a whole lot, lot of people who who gave them a chance to post work or, or 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 have their work put out there. So, I mean, was that part of the reason for why you wanted to 
create io9 but to give a chance for other people to have a voice as well yeah i mean you know you've already talked to anna lee uh my partner who you know was the founder of io9 so you know you know that anna lee really founded io9 and i sort of you know got swept up in it and i'm so grateful that i did um but it was really Annalie's vision for the site and for how it was going to run that, you know, that that really shaped what it, what it became. And, you know, anybody who read IO9 back in the day owes Annalie a huge debt if, if they enjoyed it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So, I mean, the thing about IO9 was, especially once we got going, we kind of did have this awareness, you know, and sometimes, you know, we, we did our best to try to be humane, even though we were also being very snarky. And we had to, had this awareness that we were sort of, you know, that we had a big reach because we were part of this blog network and, you know, people were reading us, you know, who never would have read what we had to say in other contexts. And so, you know, I think that we we tried as much as we could to boost voices that, that weren't getting boosted elsewhere. And so, you know, we would try, for example, to find cool short stories online and be like, hey, you know, it's lunchtime. Why don't you read this short story by this awesome person that you may not have heard of before? And for a while there, we actually had Tempest Radford, who is like one of my favorite people writing a short story column. And I think Tempest went out of her way to kind of highlight stories that, you know, needed or deserved more love. And I think that was a thing that, and, you know, we would try to review books too that hadn't gotten as much love necessarily. Mm-hmm. It was always very ad hoc though. It was always very much like, you know, whatever we could do in our crazy schedule. Um, but I think, you know, I mean, I do think that, you know, to, to quote Spider-Man with, with great power comes to great responsibility. And when you do have more reach and more access, uh, you kind of owe it to your community and to yourself really to, to try to boost voices that aren't getting boosted elsewhere. Um, and to try to lift up people who are being left out of the conversation and especially marginalized people, and, you know, there are times nowadays when I really wish I still had that kind of platform where, you know, I see other authors who I'm like, oh, this person, I wish I could just, you know, post a thing about this book right now mm-hmm. on io9 or this short story that I just read, because, you know, that would be how I could get it in front of this much louder audience. And I could tweet about stuff and I do, but, you know, it's not it's not quite the same in terms of like, you know, the ability to reach, you know really millions of people we had yeah. millions of people reading that site yeah. it's crazy i mean i um, i certainly got quite a few recommendations for books and stuff and it seemed i remember you guys used to do a lot of short films that you thought were quite good you know it, it was just a oh, lot yeah. of content that i wouldn't necessarily have seen i don't think if i hadn't been pushed from you guys mm-hmm. yeah and you know we had it was i don't know it was that was that's the thing i mean there's a lot that i don't miss at this point about doing io9 because i feel like it was it was a really tough job but it was it was a wonderful job. It was a really tough job. But one of the things that I miss all the time, one of the things that I constantly, you know, just miss is is this thing of being able to having that power to really, you know, to to really shine a spotlight on people who needed that, you know, that exposure. And that was that was something that you know sometimes we could do like twenty minutes work and it would really make a huge difference to someone else. And yeah. you know that was the thing that I felt really uh good about it at the time and I, I really miss being able to do that now like if i could just have a platform where all i did is recommend people's stuff and there was a huge audience for it you know i would love that mm-hmm. um and and during while while you were doing that though of course you were still writing yourself um and uh you uh, did you did you sort of 
choose to focus more on the shorter stuff because your 2011 novelette won the Hugo Award in, in 2012, I think, um, before your second novel, uh, All the Birds in the Sky, which we'll chat about in a moment, came out as well. So uh, what was your... Did you did you sort of want to focus more on the short fiction or were you working on both at that during that period? I was definitely working on both. And, you know... Um, Man, I, I wrote four novels in between Choir Boy and All the Birds of the Sky, which did not get published. Oh, wow. And, you know, um, it's a whole thing. Like Soft Skull had, you know, they got bought by this other entity and they were kind of going through a lot of transitions and um, a bunch of other stuff happened. And I actually had an agent in 2007 who was chopping around a novel of mine and he sent it everywhere and it just didn't quite find the right home. And so, you know, and then he didn't feel like my next project was something that he was excited about. And so we kind of parted ways. So I had, you know, I briefly had an agent into 2007 before I finally got the agent I have now in, in, I guess, 20, late 2013, early 2014. Um, So, you know, it's, it was a very winding road, but yeah, I have these four novels uh, one of which I actually kind of ended up cutting down and turning into a novella, and that's called Rockman and Goes for Broke. And I felt like a lot of the weaknesses in that novel I was able to kind of solve by just making it much shorter and, you know, kind of getting to the just just getting to the good parts, I guess, you know, and not not having quite so many subplots that went all over the place. So um, and then there are three other. So that no, that novel finally did appear as a book in vastly kind of uh, shortened, reduced form. And then I have, you know, these three other novels that I would really love to do with something with at some point. And I've kind of, I've, I guess, you know, I've poked at them. Mm-hmm. And um, one of them in particular, I was trying to kind of revise and maybe also turn into a novella. But I, I kind of put it aside because I needed to think about it some more. And I had other projects that were kind of breathing down my neck. But yeah, so it was definitely like, all the Birds of the Sky was actually my sixth novel that I finished. And there were other novels that I did not finish or that I got, you know, a big chunk of before I just, it it wasn't working. And, and obviously all the Birds in the Sky had a a huge impact when it, when it came out, Um, it won the Nebula award. And I think Time magazine listed it in their top uh, 10 books of the year as well. So, you know, how did that feel? Because after, after having written, these other novels that, that for whatever reason didn't get published to suddenly make this big impact must've been a great feeling. It felt so surreal. I mean, you know, um, I definitely had not expected anything like that. You know, when I, when I wrote all the birds of the sky, I think part of why it, you know, I mean, obviously I had won the Hugo for that short, for that mm-hmm. novel novelette, which um, had a certain amount in common with all the birds of the sky and that they sort of were very focused on a single relationship between two people and um, had kind of some of the same feel to it, I think, you know, six months, three days and all the birds in the sky. Um, So I kind of knew that people had liked that. And that actually gave me a little bit of courage to kind of to go forward with all the birds in the sky. But um, yeah, it was like, I don't know. I sort of thought that all the birds of the sky was going to be this weird, quirky, little novel that you know maybe a handful of people would really really like and that it would be like a book that would kind of get my foot in the door and people would be like oh yeah this you know 
this weird quirky little novel you know i i like it and you've never heard of it and kind of would be like mm-hmm. one of those things that you know certain people would really you know would be talking up or whatever and then i sort of thought my next novel which i just i was already working on the city in the middle of the night i thought that that was gonna be my big breakout novel mm-hmm. because it was meaty and more serious and more sci-fi and more kind of more kind of grounded in various ways um and yeah I just, you know, I wasn't really prepared for the response to all the birds in the sky, all the stuff that I had sort of thought, oh, God, people are going to hate this. Like some of the stuff that I was like kind of, you know, kind of defiantly putting in, even though I knew people were going to get mad about it. Like, you know, there's and like the in particular, some of this weird stuff that the narration does, like where they're at the mall and they're kind of speculating mm-hmm. about the feet of all the people going by on the, the escalator and then one of the people it turns out that they've guessed right and that he's actually there to kill them. I was sort of like, Oh God, this is, I'm going to get hate mail about this. This is everything <laughs> that the writing advice books tell you not to do. And it's everything that like everybody always says that they hate in fiction. And I'm just going to keep it in because I, it, I feel like this is what I wanted this. I want this book to, to kind of push the limits in various ways. And I, I feel like this is a thing that I'm willing to, to fight for and this is the hill i'm willing to die on and i just knew that people were going to hate that and all i've ever heard is people say that that's their favorite moment in the book and it's so weird because i was just bracing myself for like a flood of condemnation and you know it just really goes to show that when people are like you you cannot do this in a book you must not do this if you do this i quit reading oh gosh you know (laughs) it's actually what they're really saying is if you do it badly or if you do it in a way that annoys them Like, yes, but anyway, so yeah, all the birds of the sky, I really was not expecting that. And I was kind of, I really thought that it was going to just be sort of the, the layup, if, if that makes any sense. And then, and then I was going to actually maybe score a goal with, with city in the middle of the night, if I was lucky. Uh, so it really took me by surprise. And I'm still kind of just astonished when I think back, like that this thing that I kind of wrote in defiance of what everybody told me I should be doing is the thing that that gets all this love and um i think i'd read somewhere that you you said when you were you were trying to find your writing voice and you it was a kind of moment that, that you had when you realized that, that rather than trying to write a book that i suppose quote anyone could write that you should try to focus on writing only what you could write um and 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 realizing that it was it was the way to do it was writing to your own strengths and to and to read a book and to write a book, I suppose that you would like to read yourself. And is that is it was that quite an important point for you when you kind of in trying to find your voice in writing novels? Yeah, I think it was. I mean, you know, and I I still really struggle with that because my voice changes over time, and you know, I I don't want to get pigeonholed, so I try to stretch out and do new things. And then it's like, how far can you go into like a new area and a new style before you're no longer heeding that advice? And that's yeah. You know, that was something I thought a lot about with The City in the Middle of the Night, where I really tried to kind of write differently than I had before because I wanted to kind of keep stretching myself. Uh, But yeah, I feel like the thing that All the Birds of the Sky and City in the Middle of the Night and pretty much all my other recent stuff have in common is that they're really weird and they're really kind of surreal and a little bit silly and a little bit bizarre and a little bit just kind of like off kilter and... You know, that's that is kind of my thing, I think, to some extent, is that I I don't really like to write things that are like too kind of, you know, sensible or whatever, for lack of a better term. 
Yeah. So, you know, that was the thing is that one of those four unpublished novels, I'd say the first three of them, I really kind of put everything I had into trying to get them published, like Rock Manning. And then there was a historical novel about the first uh, two years of Bill Clinton's presidency. Um, and then there was also uh, a portal fantasy. Those three books, I sent them everywhere. I like kept sending them out, kept sending them out for, for months and months. And I think in some cases for years, I just never quite found the right home for them. And I was like convinced that if I could find the right home that, you know, they would, they could be published and people would like them. Mm -hmm. The fourth book though, you know, at a certain point I kind of, I personally kind of lost faith in it a little bit. Um, and that was, you know, that was a situation where, you know, I had written an urban fantasy novel. I was, I, you know, I went through a huge phase in college and after college of really loving noir kind of detective novels by like Raymond Chandler and uh, Ross MacDonald and, you know, a bunch of other writers, uh, Dashiell Hammett, even Mickey Spillane. I actually have a huge soft spot for Mickey Spillane, who is a novel that, who's a writer that not that many people I, I know really seem to respect anymore, but I, I love his stuff. I'm sure it's, super messed up and problematic and if i go back and read it again now i'll be like horrified but <laughs> i just loved his kind of cockamamie writing style so i was like you know i was reading all these urban fantasy novels by people like richard cadry and you know jim butcher and shannon mcguire mm -hmm. and you know um there were all these urban fantasy series coming out and they were just some of them were very noir and hard-boiled and reminded me of these detective novels that i had been reading when I was younger and I was like, I could do this. I would have a lot of fun doing this. And so I wrote a kind of, um, you know, rough and ready, hard boiled kind of noir urban fantasy book that was very much in part uh, an homage to all those detective novels I'd loved and also all these urban fantasy books I've been reading. And, you know, two things happened. One, I started, started to get the sense that the the market for urban fantasy was drying up and that if you didn't already have a series that would have been launched you know earlier like richard cadry with said men slim and you know shot mcguire with october day and so on um that it was not going to work like that you know the the market for urban fantasy had been kind of satiated at that point and that this this particular type of urban fantasy especially and you know i also just sort of you know I, I was shopping the urban fantasy around while I was halfway through writing All the Birds in the Sky. And I did have a little bit of like sort of, you know, there were people who were like, you know, we might be interested in this urban fantasy. Uh, there was like a little bit of sort of tentative, you know, potential interest. But I just kept thinking that All the Birds in the Sky was a much better choice for a debut, partly because it was more like six months, three days, which had, you know, gotten all this attention mm -hmm. at the time. And partly because uh, it just it felt more me. It felt more like a book that was like, you know, just a Charlie Jane Anders book. Whereas this other book really felt a little bit like I was trying to rip off Mickey Spillane and Raymond mm -hmm. Chandler and Richard Cadry and all those other folks. And it just, and you know, it was just, it felt a little bit, you know, and there's stuff in that, that urban fantasy that I still really love, like, and I am going to try to polish it up at some point and make it a better book and try to get it published as probably as a novella, uh, realistically. There's stuff in there that's really fun. It's actually a very silly book is the thing. It's very funny and silly and weird. There's like some sequences that are completely bonkers, which I had a lot of fun writing. And, um, you know, and the main character carries around, uh, he's like a hard boiled, 
he's actually not going to be the main character anymore. He's going to kind of share that status with a couple other people because he was too much of a stock character, I thought, and I need to flesh him out, but also bring other people to the foreground. But he carried around something called a gun of natural causes, which is basically like a gun, which if he shoots you with it, you will instantly die of natural causes. <laughs> and I thought that was a really fun concept because it's just like, you know, he goes around murdering people, but he, he constantly, he always gets away with it because, you know, it's like, Oh, they died of, you know, pancreatitis or whatever, yeah. you know, <laughs> it's funny. That's the, I mean, I definitely struggle with that sometimes where you kind of, you're trying to work out what your voice is and you read some stuff and you think that's what I'm going for. And then you don't want to go too far into becoming just imitation of that. And you're trying to work out your own voice in that similar style, but and that kind of balance between your own voice and other people's voices. It's hard to, to get that line right sometimes. It really is. And, you know, I don't mind, like I know people who won't read, when they're working on a, a draft of a, mm-hmm. of a novel or a short story, or they won't read anything that's too similar. I don't really mind. Like, I don't mind if a little bit of someone else's, you know, style or if they're, you know, whatever their mojo or I don't mm-hmm. know, seeps into my stuff because I f- usually find that, you know, in revision, it all gets smoothed out anyway. Like in revision, you're going to end up kind of getting things kind of, you're going to end up all the all the kind of stuff that sticks out is going to get a little bit more smoothed in and you're going to kind of every one of those passages are going to polish over and over and over again hopefully until it's you know your own thing through and through and also the other thing is you know once you've developed your voice which is a whole process that i'm happy to talk about but once you've developed your voice it's kind of there and you almost can't escape it like with with City of the Middle of the Night, I was like, okay, I'm going to really change things up. I'm going to really write differently. I'm going to really write in a different style than All the Birds in the Sky because I don't really want to be pigeonholed and also because I want to keep pushing myself and trying to do new things. And, you know, inevitably, my style creeps in, my voice creeps in, and it ends up sounding like me because that's just, I've. it's like you've been practicing something for so long. You've mm. been, you know you've been learning to do things a certain way for so long that it becomes second nature and you can't actually escape from your own voice. Um, And it's just, you know, once you've got that, that it's there, I think. And is your process one of um, sort of getting that first draft out and then revising, 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 or do you revise as you go, you know, and try and get a fairly polished draft out at, at the end of the first draft? It's my process is very weird. <laughs> you know what I generally do, and it, it varies from project to project, like because I, I'm trying to get more for the young adult books, I'm trying to get better about like really outlining and really knowing where the story is going so that I don't, you know, because they're so plot heavy. Uh, but, you know, and also depends if I'm writing longhand in like one, a journal, like one of your lovely journals, or if I'm writing on the computer, most of my novels before the young adult books I wrote longhand. I think that that's part of how I like to write novels, even though it's kind of a pain in the ass because you have to then transcribe them and everything, um, which I'm in the middle of doing with this new novel that I'm working on. So yeah, um, I, I, I try to get a first draft out as fast as possible, but it usually takes me a very long time because part of what I'm doing when I'm writing a first draft is I'm figuring out what the story is and what it's really about and what it means to me. And there's certain, I feel like there's certain decisions I make when I'm writing a first draft that are hard to go back on, especially about like kind of the, the, 
what the emotional center of the book is mm-hmm. and what the kind of driving idea of the book is and you know just how I can make myself believe in this book how I can kind of convince myself that this book is going to work in this way and that it makes sense and that I am invested in these characters in this story which is a thing that I have to keep doing as I write I have to keep reconvincing myself and re so I will I will barrel ahead and sometimes on a good day I can write thousands of words of a draft and just get it down but then I have to kind of stop and really interrogate okay is this the book I want to be writing where am I going with this is this you know is there any point to any of this am I just kind of recycling tropes or am I doing something that that I really believe in Um, and I really kind of have to stop and interrogate it over and over again and if you look at you know, and you never should because it would be horrifying. But if you look at any of my kind of drafts folders for any of my previous novels, including All the Birds in the Sky, there's just hundreds of pages of kind of me asking myself questions and me kind of like brainstorming and interrogating the book kind of and trying to figure out where it's going. Mm-hmm. And that's usually during the drafting process. It happens in revision too, but in the drafting process, I really kind of um, try to get deep into like what the book is about and why I care. And then after I've written a draft or sometimes when I have a second draft, then I will outline over and over again to try to kind of see what I've got and to see what, you know, exactly how things should go. And like, if there's something out of place or if there's something where like, well, there's a step missing between this and this, I have to write some more scenes where I get, I bridge these two sections or, you know, the just the flow of the book is mm-hmm. weird or the emotional resonance isn't working or there's too much of this, none of this. I just keep outlining until I kind of know how the book should, what the shape of the book should be. And then I go back and kind of take all that stuff I wrote and kind of smush it into that shape. And w- when you've finished a draft or when you're, w- when the book, I suppose, is in a shape that you're happy with, do you show it to anyone or do you just send it to your agent at that point? Yeah, no, I mean, I pretty much always, uh, I will show it to beta readers. I will hire sensitivity readers, usually plural nowadays. Mm. I will, um, I will show it to as many people as possible. And, you know, there are some friends of mine who've been incredibly generous and patient about like being willing to look at like multiple books at this point. And I'm, I feel extremely grateful and also a little guilty that I forced these people to suffer through some of these, you know, terrible, Usually second or third drafts. I, I usually revise. I do like a couple passes and try to smooth out the obvious problems. Like, you know, it's not really um, fair to show someone a, a book where you're like, well, I know that there, I know that these things are problems. I know that this book is like a hundred pages too long. I know that mm-hmm. this is a problem, but I want you to read it and give me feedback anyway. It's like if you already know the X, Y, and Z are problems and that you're going to have to do X, Y, and Z to fix it. Do that stuff first and then get feedback on it. So you can find out about the stuff that you don't already know is a problem mm-hmm. is always my feeling. So yeah, I, I fanatically will show my books to everybody before, uh, usually before sending it to the publisher. And, you know, sometimes, unfortunately, when you have a, when you sign a contract and they want to get the book by a certain date, you kind of have to compromise a little bit and send it to the editor at the same time as you send it to your beta readers and sensitivity readers. And then you just get all the feedback back at once. Um, and I definitely had that with the YAs a little bit, but uh, in general, yeah, I, I, I don't, I want to turn in the most 
polished and sort of thought through thing I can. And again, I don't want to waste my editor's time by showing her something, uh, Miriam Weinberg in particular, something that I already know that there's a problem here and there or that, you know, or that I, I want to somebody, if my beta readers can identify most of the problems, then Miriam is free to kind of come back and be like, well, this thing that, that, you know, is more fundamental or this thing that everybody else missed, this is the thing you have to address. And it sort of frees her up, I think. And, you know, she's such a brilliant editor. She's so good at catching where I've kind of cheated and let myself down and everything. So, um, yeah. Do you, do you ever get the sort of notes that you don't agree with that you want to push back on or, are you generally in agreement with what comes back? I would say generally when people point out issues, it usually means that there is a problem. And, you know, the thing that everybody says this, it's not, I didn't come up with this, but if people come to you and say, you know, this is the problem, oftentimes they're not entirely pinpointing what the problem really is. And if they offer a solution, it's usually not the right solution. But, you know, if they're, um, but sometimes if people are like, well, I need to know more about this character. What it really means is you should cut that character out of the book because, you know, they're taking up too much space and people are wondering about them and mm. they're kind of distracting from what the book actually is about. Um, so, you know, sometimes you have to do the kind of the opposite of what people want you to do or ask you to do. Um, but generally, you know, I mean, I'm so grateful for any feedback at this point, you know, and I feel like it's, it's not, you know, I know that my writing still has major issues. I never want to turn into one of those people who just kind of, you know, is like, well, it's fine. You know, we'll just put it out there. Like, you know, I, I, I'm never going to not write a book that has major issues. And so, and I get to a certain point where I can't see what those issues are. And so I'm just desperately grateful to anybody who can give me any idea of where to look to find the issues that I'm missing. And, you know, it's, I just treat it like a diagnostic tool. And sometimes, Sometimes you do have to kind of step back and look globally at the the entire work and see, okay, well, these people are saying this about the book, but I know that the book as a, as a whole is supposed to be this thing. And so, you know, maybe I actually need to make this other radical change in order mm -hmm. to address their notes. But mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, you know, um, I'll even sometimes read really mean reviews of my books just to see if I can glean <laughs> some kind of like advice out of that. And that was actually, you know, I read some really mean reviews of my short fiction online where people were saying, you know, Charlie Jane Andrews just somebody she'll go for the cheap laugh instead of, you know, the emotional gut punch. And I really sat with that. And I was like, no, I don't. And then I sat with it for a long time. And I was like, you know what? This is 100% correct. I do sometimes just go for the cheap laugh rather than actually getting deeper into the emotion or, you know, really honoring the characters in the story. And, you know, sometimes I can get a better laugh if I actually, you know, make the characters a little bit more three-dimensional and let them live a little bit more. Yeah. And I, that was part of why all, why the city in the middle of the night was a much less funny book than all the birds in the sky was because I was really trying to push myself to not rely on humor when I, to, to get, you know, to the stuff I needed to get mm -hmm. to. Awesome. Um, well, let's have a quick chat about your latest book, which is uh, out April uh, next month, the time of recording, April 2021, Victories Greater Than Death. Uh, could you tell us a little bit what the book's about? Yeah. So Victories Greater Than Death is sort of my big gonzo, you know, bonkers space opera. Uh, it's very much like inspired by like Doctor Who and 
you know, Guardians of the Galaxy and Steven Universe and She-Ra and like, you awesome. know, um, Star Trek. Obviously, there's a, a lot of Star Trek in this book. And, you know, it's I I really wanted to write a book that was sort of like a, a proper young adult book with lots of feelings and relationships and characters fighting themselves. But also a book that, you know, really works as a space opera that has like all of the big ideas and the, you know, thought out universe and the technology that kind of, you know, feels integrated into the mm-hmm. world and just all of that stuff. And so it was really important to me to try and kind of hit that balance. And basically this, you know, it's about this uh, teenage girl named Tina, who uh, she's known for a few years now. She's probably known, I think, since her, I think I decided her 12th birthday that she is um she's not a human she looks like a human being she lives on earth but actually she's an alien who was left on earth as a baby as like you know and she's actually the clone of this like famous legendary alien hero like this incredible hero and um so when she gets old enough she has this like rescue beacon basically this you know this homing beacon that's going to activate and it's, it's lodged inside her somewhere and these aliens are going to come get her and she's going to re- re- return to her old life and be a hero again. And that's all she wants. She just really wants to get out in the universe and save some planets and be a larger than life, awesome hero who does awesome stuff. And, you know, and it's all about sort of, you know, when you have this idea in your head of who you want to be, of the person you want to be, but that's not actually you. That's just this sort of image that you have in your head. Mm. And so on one level, it's like sort of a, it is a very fun swashbuckling space opera with fight scenes and danger and escape and, you know, and monsters that want to eat your hair and everything. And, um, but on the other hand, it's also about, you know, realizing that maybe you don't actually want to be this kind of, you know, I'm kind of giving away the ending, I guess, but you don't necessarily want to be this kind of larger than life like epic hero you just want to be you kind Mm -hmm. of and that you know there are some major downsides to that to to trying to be the larger than life epic hero and also that uh you know that sometimes instead of trying to be the hero you should be part of a group of friends who also all get together and save the universe together kind of and so it's sort of wrestling with a lot of my thoughts about like heroic narratives and coming of age stories and like the hero's journey and all that stuff and is that the first, is it the first in a series of books, Victory Screen in the Day? Yeah, it's the first in a trilogy. And, uh, you know, if people like the first three, you know, I would love to go back to that world and write more at some point. I think that there's, I definitely have more ideas. Um, and it's basically like, actually, the second book is, <sighs> knocking on wood, the second book is basically done. I, uh, uh, I promised I would get the the revised version back to my editor in March, and it is March, which means that the book is almost done. <laughs> um, and yeah, and then the third book, I have a very detailed outline, and I've started writing it. And I think the third book is going to be the 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 most fun of the three because, you know, this is my first time writing a trilogy, so this is all new to me. But you get to a certain point where you've pushed the boulder up the hill, you've pushed it up the hill, you've pushed it up the hill, and then you just kind of go downhill and. Yeah. Usually for me, that happens in one book. Like I get to the, the few thirds mark of the, the novel and then the boulder's just rolling downhill and nothing can stop it. But in this, because it's a trilogy, I had to keep kind of laying, you know, kind of building, laying down bricks and kind of building the road and whatever. I had to keep like, you know, 
building the world out in the second book. And then the third book, I'm kind of done building out the yeah. world and it's just action from the beginning. Nice. But the second book is also super fun though. I had a lot of fun with the second book. And when, when you're planning a trilogy like that, how much is fixed in stone, if you like, of that, of the, of the arc? And how much do you get to, you know, because when, when you're writing a sto- when you're writing a novel, you can have a, an outline or something, but as you're writing it, something will happen. The characters will do something and you'll suddenly go, oh, wait, what happens if I go down this route? But presumably with a trilogy, you have to stay within the sort of longer term plan for it, for it to work out a bit more. Yeah, I mean, it's funny. This is definitely something that I'm learning. And, um, you know, with the first book, with Victories Greater Than Death, there were a lot of surprises when I was writing it. And um, it definitely deviated from what I had told the publisher was going to happen in the end of the book. And in good ways, I think, entirely in good ways. And, you know, there were some things that kind of happened with Tina, where she makes a choice at the end of the first book that I hadn't actually thought she was going to make, if definitely not that soon, but definitely I hadn't seen that coming. But it it felt like it was the right choice for her to make in that moment. And, you know, some of the other characters also made choices. So the second book ended up being completely different from what I had originally pitched. And, you know, part of that was that I had these conversations with my editor, with Miriam Weinberg, where I would be like, well, so what if, you know, am I allowed in the second book to feature other point of view characters alongside Tina? Because Tina's the only POV in the first book. And I wanted to kind of open it out and maybe feature some other characters as POVs. And Miriam, instead of saying, no, 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 you have to stick to the same POV throughout all three books, that's the rule. Miriam instead was like, what if you just didn't have Tina as a POV in the second book? Because we already had a whole book of her POV in the first book. And Miriam really actually pushed me to think of the trilogy as three kind of very different books from each other mm-hmm. so that you don't get that, you know, sometimes with the trilogy, you're like, okay, oh, it's this thing again. Oh, this person's doing this yeah. again, you know? And she wanted, she really pushed me to think in terms of like making each book a unique thing so that people don't feel like we're, we're just kind of going through the same, you know, tread wheel again. Yeah. And so in the end, the second book doesn't really have Tina's POV in it, in it at all, except that she writes some letters so we get we get a little bit of her voice, but it's mostly focusing on other characters. And that was a thing that was actually super liberating. So, you know, but then once the first book is set, so the first book changed a lot as I was writing it. And it ended up changing what the second book was completely because of some of the choices that I made that I hadn't expected. And but then, you know, um, once the first book is finished and it's gone to, you know, the the copy editor and then the typesetter and it's being bound up and sent out to people at that point you cannot go back and change yeah. what happens in the first book yeah. and so you know there's stuff in the second book where i'm like well i have to make this work because i did this in the first book and you know i can't change that now so i'm just going to go with it and luckily for me there was nothing i never had a thing where i was like well i'm totally I painted myself into a corner now. Mm-hmm. I'm totally, you know, ruined. This is the end of my career. <laughs> you know, I'm just going to have to like light my hair on fire. Um, there were, it was more like just every now and then I'd be like, okay, you know, I have to, there's a slight logistical challenge in terms of like where I said this character was going to be. And now I kind of wish this character was over here instead, but I can think of tw- 10 ways to get them where I need them to be, or I can think of 10 ways to work with the way that they are now. So it wasn't that 
much of a nightmare. And but it it was definitely the trilogy is going to be, end up being very different, like completely different from what I had originally pitched. In you know when I sold mm-hmm. the entire trilogy, I had an outline, and the second and third books are not anything like that outline at all. But at this point, having done a very detailed outline of the third book, I feel like I kind of know where what I'm doing. Knocking on wood again. <laughs> <laughs> and would you ever want to to try your hand at any other form of writing, like a screenplay or a comic or anything? I mean, I've done both of those things. Um, yeah. So uh, screenplays. Well, I mean, television is that screenplays? I don't know. That's yeah, that's yeah, scripts. I guess so. Yeah, yeah. I suppose, I've never yeah. never written a movie to this at this point, but I've written some stuff for television, um, and that's been super fun. That's actually been great in terms of like helping me to think differently about story structure and about like how you plan a story because in television everything is so you know you plan out every moment in advance Mm -hmm. and it's just crazy the the amount of detail and then inevitably you change your mind and tear it up and start over again it's like crazy but um but so yeah i've done i've done some television and i've done a bit of writing for comics i'm really hoping to do more soon and i'm sort of talking to some folks right now about doing some more comics work i wrote a a little bit of stuff for marvel comics in particular there was a she hulk story that uh they had a giant crossover a couple of years ago called war of the realms and uh they needed just like a short thing about what she hulk was up to during this crossover and i had always wanted to write she hulk she's like my favorite character well her and wonder woman i think uh and squirrel girl (laughs) Um, and a couple others but so i was like super i love she hulk so i basically poured my heart and soul into writing this like 10 page she hulk thing for marvel and um and i got to establish in marvel universe canon that the punisher is a huge jody mitchell fan (laughs) which you know people there was some punisher fan page that found this and i thought they were gonna be mad but they loved it and i was like oh thank goodness i don't want the punisher fans mad at me so, so you just essentially write to Marvel and say, "I'd love to have a shot at doing this." Or no, um, actually, so that was one of those things where you know, again, winding path. There was an editor at Marvel who got in touch with me years ago, like probably five or six years ago, and said, "You know, do you want to try writing for us?" And so I signed an NDA because you have to do that if you're going to pitch. Them. Awesome. Um, and or I signed a I signed a whole complicated agreement where basically they can't I can't sue them if I pitch a thing and then three years later they publish something that's similar, I think is yeah. what that basically boils down to. So I signed a bunch of stuff and I started pitching her and then she left the company. Um, and then a year or two later, another editor got in touch and just was like, Hey, you know, would you ever consider writing for Marvel? And I was like, absolutely. I would, I've already signed the paperwork and, you know, I would love to talk to you some more. And so we hung out We when I was in New York and then, you know, I had, there were a few different ideas for series that I pitched, which for various reasons ended up not happening. But then one of the things I talked to them about a lot was that I would love to write She-Hulk. And um, so when this thing came along, they just sort of thought of me because they were like, well, she already said she wants to write She-Hulk. So let's see if she'll write this little thing. And so nice. that's sort of how that, how that came about. You'll be super excited for the up- up- upcoming uh, She-Hulk show. And isn't it? They're not meant to be doing that this year or next year if Disney it Plus? Was- it looked so great. I mean, just the cast, you know, um, I'm, I'm super excited for it. I think it's going to be fantastic. I wish I was yeah. writing for that. God, <laughs> that would be so much fun. You're brilliant.
what is the last book that you read? Oh gosh, the last book that I read was uh, The Queen of Nothing by Holly Black, which is the third book in the Folk of the Air trilogy. I've been really wanting to finish that trilogy for ages, and I kept getting sidetracked by other books that I had promised to read. So I finally got through it, and oh my god, that trilogy is amazing. Like it is, it's up there with like the great, you know fantasy epics it's Brilliant. it's so incredibly well done it's so beautiful and the characters are just like so perfect and brilliant and i just you know i was reading it you know because i'm working on my own ya sequels now and i was just like how does she do this how is she working this incredible magic and like i still don't entirely know i think that she's just you know she's some kind of a magical creature but so yeah uh the the queen of nothing by holly black Awesome. And uh, what about the last film that you watched? Oh, gosh. The last film I watched was the amazing Barb and Star Go to Vista Del Mar, which is a new comedy that uh, just came out on on pay-per-view, at least in the United States. And it is so incredible. It's such a fantastic movie. And it's, you know, it's, it's kind of a science fiction film. It's got a little bit of fantasy. It's very silly. It's just, it's all about like a friendship between these two middle-aged women and they end up you know kind of defeating a supervillain and doing some other stuff but it's just it's a really wonderful film that is just it's like a, a friendship romance which is one of my favorite things and it's just so well done and i really loved it uh, i've not i've not heard of that i mean is no, 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 yeah yeah it's Kristen wieg and I forget oh, who yeah. else is in it, but it's it's so good. Brilliant. You have to hunt it down. Yeah, definitely. Awesome. And uh, what was the last uh, TV show that you watched or are watching? Well, I just started season seven of The Flash. Oh, and yeah. I also have been watching, you know, Superman and Lois mm. and Batwoman. I'm kind of a sucker for these CW kind of Arrowverse <laughs> shows. They're just, you know, they're they're. They're kind of like anytime there's a new episode of one of them, I just drop everything. <laughs> yeah, I was I was really into them for ages, and then suddenly I don't know if it got to the point when I was kind of overwhelmed with too many shows, yeah. and I kind of dropped away from them. But there was a point, yeah, up to like, I, fi- I didn't actually finish all of Arrow, but up to about season must have been six or so of Arrow and three or four of Flash. It was and yeah, it was fantastic. I think I still think the first season of Flash is and the seasons the second season of Arrow are two fantastic seasons of tv they really are and you know it's true that you get to a certain point where arrow is sort of you know kind of, i don't know some of the later seasons of arrow i found a little bit slow in parts mm-hmm. but you know they're still lovely i mean you know i love that cast yeah. uh and you know the writing is, is still really great it's just that you know once superhero stories have re- always reached a point in any medium where it's sort of like, okay, what now? Because yeah. you yeah, sort of totally. have the trubby yeah. stuff and then you just have to keep going through the motions a little bit. And the, the Superman and Lois is meant to be great. I've not seen it yet, but uh, I've heard great things about it the first couple of episodes. It, it's fun so far. Tyler Hoechlin is like a great Superman. He's mm-hmm. he's fantastic. Yeah, and so the, the very, very last thing we always do is a quick fire either or. And um, I always say there's no right answer apart from one. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, the the first one is I'll go for a classic opener here, uh, Star Trek or Star Wars. Oh wow! I mean, I would say if I had to only watch one, it would be Star Trek for sure because there's a lot more Star Trek to watch for one thing. <laughs> but also, you know, answer, I think like Star Star Trek it's just that hopeful kind of mm-hmm. you know 
we're, we're going to make it, we're going to survive, we can work together, we can understand each other. That whole spirit of cooperation and friendship is super important to me. Um, and uh, early bird or night owl? Man, I was a night owl until recently, and lately I've been a little bit more of an early bird. And I think it's partly because I've got a new cat. And he just <laughs> will wake me up at 7 a.m. whether I want to be woken up or not. Uh, fancy restaurant or a takeaway? Probably a takeaway. I mean, my favorite restaurants tend to be hole-in-the-wall places. And obviously, everything's takeaway right now anyway. Yeah, you can't actually totally. sit in a restaurant. But I like a hole-in-the-wall. And so, you know... My my choice would probably be like to eat in the restaurant, but to be kind of like nervously eyeing the little bits of grime on the walls. As I <laughs> uh, TV or cinema? Well, definitely TV at this point, partly because I can't go to a cinema, but also because uh, I feel like, you know, TV is where a lot of the most ambitious, interesting stuff is happening. Yeah. And, yeah, you know, now you're pretty much getting movies that are just chopped up into TV shows. You have these mini series that are basically movies, mm -hmm. but they can, they can kind of stretch things out a little bit more and, and try different stuff. So yeah, TV. Nice. And the last one, real book or ebook. I can never do ebooks. You know, I think it's because I spend all my time looking at screens regularly. And so when I want to read, I just, there's something so, relaxing and comforting about, about reading off on paper fair enough uh, that was the actually that i feel that's actually the incorrect answer but <laughs> that, that's fine Don't worry about it. sorry <laughs> oh that was a really fun chat i really enjoyed that and in, interesting what you're saying about you know you write a trilogy and your first one's locked in and then you've got two more books to write and then suddenly you think, actually, I'm going to change where it's going a little bit, but you've your time deadline's coming in, you've set yourself up already, where are you going to go? You're limited. There's pressure there, I think. Yeah, and yeah, obviously you must have an idea of the sort of overall arc of that yeah. story, but it's interesting that, you know, she says that the outline that she originally had for, for books two and three has now changed entirely focusing almost on a different character i think in book two so yeah it must be tricky when you're when you're writing that second book and you think oh i really want to explore this bit but does it fit with what i've already yeah. got out yeah. there and it's that i mean i mean i'm sure a lot of writers have the same thing where you're writing something and you think oh it'd be cool if this happened and you think but is this right for this book i'm doing or is this another book you know and yeah. am i going to hurt the story by trying to cram this new idea and it's it's difficult to step back sometimes and think what's what's best for the book and the characters and the story rather than just what I want to, the cool thing I've just popped into my head. That's yeah, but I mean, Victory's Greater Than Death sounds uh, sounds great. So it is out um, next week yep. uh, as we release this episode. And uh, I would highly recommend going and pick that up along with uh, Charlie Jane's other books, uh, All the Birds in the Sky, Sitting in the Middle of the Night. Uh, I've read All sure. the Birds in the Sky and it really was a great book and it's got that sort of sci-fi fantasy type stuff going on but also quite a humorous edge to it all as well which i thought was quite unique yeah it's a really cool mashup isn't it of that kind of sci-fi fantasy in a way that you don't really see often so it's it's definitely recommended reading yeah so do check those out and thanks again to charlie jane for taking the time to come on to the podcast we really appreciate that um and uh, we have another great guest next week we do have a great guest next week mr jeff vandermeer who uh perhaps best known for writing Annihilation, mm -hmm. uh, the trilogy, The Southern Reach, 
uh, series of books, which was, of course, turned into the film by... Alex Mark, Garland. Who we had on the podcast. Previous earlier. podcast guest. Exactly. What's the word I'm looking for here? Synergy. synergy. Is it synergy? I was going to say synergy. Was Let's say go with synergy. Synergy is better than Alex. <laughs> yeah, I was saying at the start of the uh, episode that there is a great back catalogue and Alex Garland is obviously one of those guests. And we actually chatted to him quite a lot about Annihilation and how he had only read the book once and then never mm-hmm. read it again. He didn't want to read it again when he was making his ad- adaptation, which differs quite a lot from the story of that book, but brings a lot of the same emotion, I think, into yeah. the film that the book has. And we we chat with Jeff about that, actually, and wh- you know whether he was happy or not with that adaptation. Um, and also, you know, his fiction is... is it has been called quotes weird fiction because Mm -hmm. it doesn't really fit easily into any kind of genre and it can sometimes be quite um standoffish or distant at first but once you get into it it really pulls you into the yeah into the story i would totally agree with that i think i i read annihilation after watching the film and and i agree they're very very different you know pieces of work but they are you're totally right that they do share that kind of that same sense of dread or Mm -hmm. You know, sadness, or whatever. That there's a similarity there in the kind of essence of it, in in, in in both in the themes of it, and I also agree wholeheartedly that the, the when you first sit down, you think this is a kind of it's very. I found it a hard book to get into it when I first started reading it, and then once it clicked, it, it I couldn't put it down. And it yeah. was it, 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 there is something about the writing which is a bit of a barrier, but once you get through it, it's fantastic. Yeah, I think so. And I've read his latest book, uh, Hummingbird Salamander, which is uh, out next week as well, actually. And it's it's great. It's it's a thriller, ecological, um, bioterrorist thriller. Um, but of course, with it being Jeff, it's it's not quite as simple as that either. <laughs> um, but definitely worth picking that one up. And we chat to him in detail about that next week. So please do tune in for next week's episode. And before we go, if you enjoyed this week's episode, please, if you do have time to give us a rating on Apple Podcasts, uh, or whatever app you use and a review it really does help us uh, with the podcast we do release these podcasts and edit them and everything for uh, free and uh, so it really helps for us to climb up those charts because that's how we keep getting great guests onto the podcast look we want to meet stephen king as much as you want to listen to <laughs> us meeting him so it's only going to happen if we get more five-star reviews <laughs> exactly yeah uh, and of course if anybody wants to get in touch you can always send us a tweet in the Twitter machine, which is at right underscore gear or an email to podcast at rightgear.co.uk. But otherwise, uh, have a great week and we'll see you next episode. See you later.